Hello, everybody. Before we start the show, let us take a minute to talk about Fangoria. You guessed it. Their kick-ass magazine always explores every nook and cranny of genre filmmaking past, present, and future with all of the most exciting journalists, filmmakers, and horror know-it-alls to show you the way. This high-quality writing will only ever appear within the physical pages of the magazine, so if you want to join in on the fun, you'll need to subscribe. To do that, all you have to do is head on over to Fangoria.com and sign up. And since KingCast listeners are in the family, you can enter in the promo code KingCast at checkout to save a whopping 25% off your entire order. And with all of that said, on with the show. My name is Stephen King. The ice is gonna break! Bad love! Bad love! You guys want to go see a dead body? Well, sometimes, that is better. Hello, and welcome to the KingCast on the Fangoria Podcast Network. My name is Eric Vespi. And I'm Scott Wampler. And we are your hosts. Our topic today is Gerald's Game, and our guest is an award-winning comic book author and novelist whose work has appeared in Marvel, DC, Image, and Oni Press, among others. Comic book nerds will remember his contributions to She-Hulk, Superman, Wonder slash Wonder Woman, Superman and Wonder Woman. Uh, Superman, Wonder Woman. It was it was both of them. Like they were they were hooking up. Superman, Wonder Woman, Swamp Thing, Death of Wolverine, Daredevil, and a good chunk of the Marvel's Star Wars books, including Obi-Wan and Anakin, Lando, Darth Vader, and Poe Dameron. As a novelist, our guest kicked off the High Republic series with Light of the Jedi, which debuted at the top of the New York Times bestseller list. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Charles Soule to the KingCast stage. Thank you very much for having me on. I'm very, very excited. Oh, we're delighted yes. to have you here. You yeah, have been you got to- very busy. Yeah. Good Lord. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, that that stuff is, you know, I've been I've been working in comics since I think I had my first what we call big two, right? Big two is Marvel and DC. And I've been working in indie comics before that. But I've, I've been in big two since 2013. Spring of 2013 is when my Swamp Thing run began for DC. And mm-hmm. they kind of keep you busy. Like for a while, I was working for both Marvel and DC at the same time, which isn't super common because they obviously can't stand each other. Um, but the way that that ended up working out is... Um, because I was doing work for both, they didn't like it. They each wanted me to sort of go in-house exclusively. So I ended up signing with Marvel in 2014 and then and was on contract with them for years uh, and and kind of still do a ton of work for them, mostly in the Star Wars world. But uh, when they have you on contract, they want to get their money's worth. So they put you on a lot of books. And so my title count just, just racked up really, really quickly, which, which was awesome. You know, I did a long run on right. Daredevil, which is a great book for me and lots of fun stuff. Yeah, I, you, um, I just want to note, I did skip over a whole bunch of shit because that intro would have been like five minutes long. Right. <laughs> so so uh, your your career is is uh, very storied. And you like you said, you got to work with so many fucking iconic characters. And, and uh, but I, I do love you talking about like working at, at Marvel and DC. It feels like those movies where like the hitman is like working both sides of, <laughs> of the thing. And like, play. it's not that I, I'm not going to say that you were like setting one side against the other or whatnot, but it just felt like you, you like you were torn between uh, uh, it was like Shakespearean you almost you were torn between two families. I mean, the, the thing that, that was sort of tough about it. I mean, there, it was, it was amazing, right. It's like to come in 
and 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 you're working like because when you're coming up in comics, not everybody has Marvel and DC. Not everybody has superhero work or big two work as their goal. But they really are kind of you know they're they're a list in terms of the amount of promotion that goes behind them, the amount of attention that that is is lavished on these legacy characters, all all of that stuff. Like it's right. for a lot of people who want to get into comics, writing those characters or drawing those characters is really the dream. And you get there usually by writing or drawing or creating comic books that are super indie that like, you know, like a three digit number of people read, like they're really, really <laughs> hard to get an audience when your name isn't known because you're competing with, you know, super established pros most of the time. Right. Um, so it's like the minor leagues in baseball and you keep kind of like, you know, slogging and slogging and slogging. And then one day you kind of get this magical tap on the shoulder. And, and mine was actually, I was at San Diego comic-con um, and, and a guy, uh, an executive at DC, who, who just kind of liked the, my random high concepts I threw at him for my creator own work at the table was like, you know, you should, you should come write for us. Would you, have you ever, no, that's not what he said. He said, have you ever thought about writing for us? And I'm like, in my head, I'm like, what do you think, dude? But um, <laughs> he, he was great. He introduced me to an editor who was, who was uh, running a lot of books over there. And he had me pitch on Swamp Thing, which for me was, was super nerve wracking because Swamp Thing, I don't know if you guys, Eric, I know you are to a degree. Scott, I don't really know how much you're of a comic person you are, but um, not not huge. Um, I've I've read a number of comics, but they tend not to be superhero ones. If that makes got sense, it. sure. Um, well, Swamp Thing is a book that is known for having absolute legends write it, and sure. you know, like if you if you look back at the history of comics for the last forty or so years, like it was it was Len Wein and and Bernie Wrightson started it, but then Alan Moore had that legendary run. Brian K. Mm -hmm. Vaughn, Grant Morrison, like all of these, like Scott Snyder had the book before I did, um, who's, who's a, a friend of mine and, you know, like a modern legend. Uh, I hope he's not listening to this. That would be embarrassing. Um, so so getting getting asked to write that is like, okay, my whatever I do is going to be held up against literally the best that I've ever been in the comics world. So it was intimidating, but I pitched and I got the gig and I, I wrote a lot on that um, and then started to get uh tapped for other books because once they know you can do the job they have a lot of books to put out a lot of slots to fill these editors are are overworked they're harried they barely can handle what they just want people that aren't going to be a headache they're going to put out publishable scripts uh and so they put me on a bunch of other stuff at dc and then marvel was like wait a minute what's this name we're hearing and so they reached out to me uh i already had some friends over there and they put me on a book called thunderbolts which is you know, obscure, but, but well-known in the comic world. And then before I knew it, they had me on three books over there. And so it, I'm on six books now between Marvel and DC and they're all monthly or more than monthly. And so it became like literally every second of every day was like how I have to be writing a script right now or editing or doing a lettering pass or something like that. And on top of that, you have to keep the continuity of two completely separate universes <laughs> really, really well defined in your head at all times because right. you can't be writing like you can't drop batman in a spider-man script like it doesn't work right. um well not so just was, characters like ton tonally they're they're both very different publishers sure. as well yeah absolutely it was it was an absolute trial by fire from somebody who was like you know oh i'm gonna see if i can get 50 people to read this new comic i'm gonna put out to <laughs> i have now an audience of theoretically you know, whatever, however many people read superhero comics, call it a million people were reading these titles. And it was, it was very, very intense. You know, then you have the PR machine of both Marvel and DC behind putting your name out there. And it, you know, made, made my name and opened a billion doors and, and let me get to kind of where I am today. So 
no complaints. I'm curious about that because comic fans are notoriously um, passionate. And yep. you've also worked in the Star Wars realm. And, yeah. uh, you know, they've got some passionate folks over on that side of the fence as well. Like, what's your experience been with the the fandoms? Um, they are different. Different fandoms are different, right? You you have, and there are some that are notorious within within comics for having a very intense set of fans in, uh, sometimes in, uh, because there's a difference between like, you know, just really loving the stuff and caring about it and being excited about it and kind of trying to ensure that it is only handled a certain way. And I think that that's true of Star Wars. I think that's true of comics. Um, but, you know, there's there's a very vocal group of fans, I think, in both places that try to define what, say, you know, like the Hulk is kind of known as a, as a, as a, as a character that has a fan base that really kind of only wants the Hulk to be one thing. Um, mm-hmm. and obviously Star Wars has elements of that. Punisher has elements of that. There are others. And so I would think Batman is one of them as well. Am I right? Well, the thing about Batman that's interesting is that Batman has such a, like a vast publishing like footprint. They, there are, you know, in any given month, there's probably 20 things published that have Batman on like Batman's name in the cover. And that's so fair. he's a character that I think has, and it, since he's been depicted so many different ways from like Adam West to, you know. Christian Bale to whatever uh, Pattinson's going to do to, to cartoons, to all of it. Like Batman is seen, I think is like, there's been so many different approaches that it feels a little bit more flexible. Right on. While, right on. Like Punisher, you know, Punisher's kind of Punisher. And, you know, there have been like, there was one where he was, um he was a Frankenstein that, uh, <laughs> which, you know, people, people talk about it. Anyway, you have to dance between the raindrops a lot while also trying to tell a story that you want to tell, while also trying to tell a story that's going to be commercial. Because if your stories don't sell, you're not going to keep the job for very long. Um, and I would, I would say a fandom that is, that is very intense to negotiate, but is a good fandom, I think, is X-Men. Mm-hmm. And they, they, X-Men fans love the X-Men, and they love it because there's so much of it, and there's so many X-Men and so on. But that's also the problem with it, because everyone has a favorite X-Person, and the one that you, the ones that you have in your book might not be one of their favorites. And so you get a lot, you, there's a lot of like, you know, when is, when is Kitty Pride going to show up in this book? When is Maggot going to show up in this book? When is whoever? And, you know, you just kind of want to write the story in a vacuum, but also you don't, because if you wrote it in a vacuum, no one would care about it. It's a weird job. I think you have to, you really have to play those three things. You know, it's like an instrument you're playing, right? You're playing the fans, you're playing uh, Marvel, and you're playing your own creative abilities to try to create something that you're proud of and that's and that's good. In Star Wars, I've been pretty lucky uh, in that the work that I've been done, I've, I've done has been very well received. I haven't yet written that thing that's been polarizing. Um, <laughs> which, but you know, but you'll get there, there, baby. I know. Okay. I mean, yeah. You know, we'll, I, I don't know if we'll talk about the High Republic, but that's all. That that whole thing's been interesting along those lines too. Well, I mean, it, it is, and I would like to just real quick before we dive into the Stephen King side of uh, of the show. I was a big comic kid. I was a big Marvel kid growing up. I fell out of comics, and then I kind of got pulled back in by a, a Civil War, um, yep. and uh, you know, because it was that era. I think it, I was reading Walking Dead a lot too, and that was bringing me back to the comic book shop, and uh, so I started picking up more stuff, and then I kind of fell off again. Uh, but I. I, I remember before we were talking, before we started recording, that we 
uh, Charles and I met on a, a cruise. It was like a floating Comic-Con <laughs> uh, pre-COVID times, uh, obviously, and uh, still in full dysentery times, I'm sure, but uh, yeah. I didn't hit any, any of that on the cruise. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, funnily enough, I had bought reading material. I'm like, oh, it's a comic book cruise, so I'm going to... I'm going to go and, uh, you know, read some comics on the flight and read some comics there. And what I had bought were uh, the trade paperbacks of um, uh, the Lando run oh, that you did. And, and, I, and I wasn't even I, I don't think I even knew that you were there. I, I just think it was like I'd heard uh, that this was, uh, you know, these books were good. I bought that in a lot of the Vader books and like, all right, I like Star Wars. I'll, I'll read all this stuff. And I, I really want to highlight like the Vader books are great, but the like Lando was the thing that made me go perk up and go, Oh shit. Like, no, this is actually really interesting stories being told. And in, in the, um, the first run was Lando. It, it was a heist story where Lando helps steal a ship that turns out to be fucking Emperor Palpatine ship. And, uh, uh, spoiler alert, but it's, uh, it's just really like well done and fun. I'm like, Oh, and then I met you on the cruise. I'm like, Oh, you really, you wrote that. I'm reading that right now. It's great. So, uh, like, I don't know, like as a Star Wars fan, you captured the tone and stuff of, of the uh, of that era. And um, uh, and I really highly recommend anybody listening to this. Go pick those books up. Well, that is extremely kind. I am I am a huge Star Wars fan from like, a, you know, obviously since since the very beginning birth. Um, and so to get to be able to create new Star Wars stories and at, at kind of a, you know, there are levels above where I am, you know, I mean, I know you've had Ryan Johnson on, I'm not Ryan Johnson, but I'm like, I'm writing a lot of stuff that's kind of, you know, particularly with High Republic, like stuff that's really generating a lot of really cool new material for Star Wars. And mm-hmm. it doesn't get better than that. You know, like I'm contrib- contributing right. stuff to something I really, truly love. And it's <laughs> canon, right? It's, it's all, all considered. Canon. It's all, it all matters. New like, canon. I did think, yeah. Yeah. You know, like I told the story of how Darth Vader got his lightsaber after he he, <laughs> um, he gets his hand chopped off by by Obi Wan in, in Revenge of the Sith. You know, there's, right. I mean, and I, I I could go on whatever, but then this would become a different kind of show. Uh, but, <laughs> but that Lando book was really like, you know, I'm glad to hear that you reacted that way because that's the book that really made like Lucasfilm and Lucasfilm Story Group say, let's give this guy more stuff to do. Mm. Um, because they felt the same way. Like a lot of, like when you're writing Star Wars, you can come at it, a lot of writers come at it really much like a fan, you know, and they're, which is important, but that can be overboard. And and so you get a story that doesn't really, it doesn't feel, it doesn't feel real in, in a weird way, if that makes sense. Um, right. And and at the same time, you know, you, you have to find a balance between telling a story that feels real, that has that feel, but also has kind of consequences, but can't have actual right. consequences. <laughs> like that Lando book you mentioned was set in between A New Hope and Empire Strikes Back. And like, we all kind of know where Lando is in Empire Strikes Back. He's running Cloud City. So like, I couldn't, you know, I couldn't kill him or, you know, I, like a lot of the typical consequences are kind of off limits because it's technically sort of a prequel to our, his first appearance. You know, I found a way in through Lobot, which, you know, if you've, you've read it, Eric. But yeah. Like, you, yeah, no, I was I was going to mention you you make like Lobot like one of the most fascinating and tragic characters of Star Wars in in this in this thing and uh uh and I ne- I never would have pictured that and that's the kind of the beauty of Star Wars is, is you know especially jumping off the that original trilogy is there's all these tertiary characters who you just glimpse um and it that seems to be a really fertile ground like there there was somebody who wrote a story about the 
the red droid that that Luke almost uh, gets on yep. on Tatooine at the beginning, mm-hmm. and like gave that droid like quasi force backstory where it it like essentially self destructed itself because it knows that R two has to be the one to go with you know with Luke and uh, and like all this stuff like it's just a really fun creative way into a lot of these these. Uh, uh, things that you just know as kind of icons in the movies. Yeah. 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 Um, but anyway, so the Lando book landed really well with Lucasfilm and I've been writing Star Wars literally ever since I've never sent 2015. I've never stopped writing Star Wars. Uh, um, and, and obviously the new stuff is the high Republic, but I'm doing like a big Boba Fett story in the comics now. And, and there's lots of other things going on. So I, you know, that's, if, if I had a professional dream growing up as like a creative person, it would have been to probably do, do work in Star Wars. And so I love doing my own stuff, writing my own novels, all these different things I'm doing, but the Star Wars stuff is definitely amazing. So it's great. If I start grilling you on High Republic stuff, then the we're going to be 40 minutes in before we start talking about Stephen King. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> so we might, might need to save that one for, you know, the next time you come on the show. Sure. Uh, but uh, let's get to your Stephen King origin story. Like, when did you first hear about Stephen King? Like, what what was the thing that like kind of made you uh, aware of him and like kind of get you hooked on on, on King? Right. So, uh, well, I listened to the show, so I knew this was coming. So I I spent some time thinking about it, and um, <laughs> I I mean, I went to Catholic school, right? I went to Catholic school until eighth grade, and there was so nuns, the whole deal. And there was a school library, but they didn't, they didn't have Stephen King because it was a Catholic school. And, you know, Stephen King is, is, has the whiff, a whiff of the satanic, I guess. And so, but they love that Richard Bachman though. <laughs> absolutely. Um, <laughs> no. so I remember very distinct, like during free reading time, like reading Stephen King books, like kind of hidden behind the, you know, there's like this kind of, it wasn't really an out, like a, a part of the classroom, you could kind of be out of the nun's direct field of vision. And so right. I would remember like, sort of like being <laughs> in there with a couple of the other dudes. And I would have, I had a Stephen King book inside another book. It was very much like, you know, the playboy inside the dictionary kind of thing. Um, right. Except it was Stephen King so that I wouldn't get it taken away. And so I was trying to figure out when that would be. Um, and I'm, I'm pretty sure the first book I read was Carrie. But then when I found that, like I went to the, like the local public library and found everything I could get. So this would have been like night shift and shining and Salem's lot and Cujo and just all of those things. And, um, I thought I, in my head, I thought that that would have been around like seventh grade, but then I started looking at the publication dates of this stuff. And I remember very distinctly being like hearing about it and being really, really excited to read it. And I looked at the mm-hmm. date of when it came out, which was 1986, which is when I was in sixth grade. And I was a huge fan of Stephen King by then. So what I'm thinking is that I probably started reading Stephen King much earlier than I thought I did, uh, maybe like fourth or fifth grade. Like, you know, I mm. like I remember for sure going and buying Tommyknockers and being super jazzed about like getting my hands on it. And that was what I have here, 1987. So so the. So I guess the point is I got into him. I found him somehow. Probably my dad, you know, liked liked the stuff. And I, I found something around and started reading it. The covers were those 1980s covers are also like iconic and, and eye catching um, mm-hmm. that that I can like you can pull them up in your head. Firestarter, all of them are they're kind of right there in my mind. And so I think I just I just started reading them. I was very avid. I would read them on long car trips um, and uh, and loved them. I think I've read there's probably like, I don't think I've read Lizzie's story, Lizzie's story, 
or Duma Key, one of those two, I, for whatever reason, I didn't read, but I think I've read pretty much everything else he's ever done other than the new one, the, the one that just came out, right? Didn't he have one just drop? Uh, Billy Summers. Yeah. It's it? great. Yeah. It's, it's, it's crime, right? Yeah. It's straight up a crime novel. There's some Easter eggs to another certain King property in there that uh, I guess he, he worked into the material as a way of just kind of a nod to fans, but yeah, it's not supernatural in any way. It's uh it's just a really tight little crime novel, and the main characters are fantastic. I was I was kind of bummed when it ended. Huh. Is it is it like a Holly Gidney thing? Like he seems like he's building out that whole world quite a bit. Mm, she's not in it, but uh, I would say it's taking place in a the same sort of tonal space as the yeah. Bill Hodges trilogy, as I understand it. I haven't read that yet. I, I was kind oh, of really? setting those ones aside. Yeah, uh, they're good. They're, they're solid. Um, I hear that. Yeah, I hear that. And I, I look forward to reading them. Um, but a while back, I started, you know, just sort of every time a new King book would come out, I wouldn't necessarily read it day one, you know, which is what I've traditionally always done. Some of them I will set aside and be like, OK, there will come a day where there are no more Stephen King books, if you know what I'm yeah. saying. Mm-hmm. And and on that day, I would like to have like maybe half a dozen or so to to go through. I did that with the Institute as well. I haven't read that one. Um, it's good. So I've got a little stockpile going, uh, but uh, yeah, revival was one of those titles uh, up until we did this podcast. And then we yeah. had to, uh, we had to force you to do it, but that would have been, I, I'm glad that you've read it now because it's one that's one of the most fun ones to talk about. But at the same time, uh, you know, that's like one of his better books in the last like 20 years. It's one of the few oh, that easily. I that, think could stand shoulder to shoulder with his like 80s, like <clears throat> prime 80s out, output. Yeah, there, there are so many like, you know, moments of like I, you know, when you think for me, when I think back on all the Stephen King stuff I've read, like there's all these little beats that kind of pop up, you know, when I think about, oh, you know, OK. Cujo, I think about Cujo and I think about the dog perspective stuff, um, which we'll talk about mm-hmm. with Gerald's game a little bit, I think. But you know, all, all of them have something, you know, like the push from Firestarter, they're like, just whatever. And from Revival, mm. it was, it was really the way that um, he described, you guys have both read it, right? Yes, of We're, course. Yeah. Okay. So the, the bit when um, the, the, the sort of the main character, you know, is, is talking about that, like, sort of like bittersweet affair he has with the, the younger woman, I think at the, the record store, or the, or the radio station where he's working. That mm-hmm. I just thought was sort of beautifully handled. And then and obviously the end was just like kicks your heart in the, you know, it's, <laughs> it's so, it's so, it's the grimmest goddamn thing. It's definitely it's, the it's, darkest ending he's ever written. He's written dark endings before, but it is existentially horrifying that ending. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's the writing of a man who's looking at, you know, who's on the wrong side of 70, I think, you know, and, and is thinking about that. Yeah. Yeah, for um, sure. And, and uh, you know, you know, we're not here to talk about revival, but, uh, you know, um, to build onto that thought revival reading revival made me question my own mortality in a way that nothing else in my life ever has. And Mm -hmm. I've been through some shit by any conceivable measure. I should not be alive right now just because of a number of situations I've been in or, dangerous things that I've done willingly or intentionally. I, and I never gave it much thought. It was just, you know, well, one day you die revival though, made me 
there was a good month or so after I first read that book where I was laying awake at night, just staring at the ceiling and thinking about shit. You know, it'll, it will, that one will fuck you up. To me, it's kind of the different, you know how there's like, when you're talking about horror movies, right? There's, there's the roller coaster thrill ride. There's the, you know, Neymar on M street or, or Friday the 13th or not all slashers, but like, you know, final destination movie, which is a horror movie in quotes that's designed to be exciting and fun. And like lots of, tension and release for the audience right and then there's something more like hereditary which is just like builds this sense of dread in you that never like that just doesn't leave like it sticks to your soul and and revival as a project um i felt the same way you know like just the way that anyway like if you if you haven't read revival and you want to feel that way which some people do uh you can, <laughs> you can check it out if that sounds appealing. rush right out and get it yeah, yeah. exactly exactly um, so let's let's talk about the title you actually brought us today, which is Gerald's Game. Um, mm-hmm. Why this why this title? Let's start there. Well, there's there's a couple of different things. It was something that was in like I hadn't watched the movie and I and I, I really love Dr. Sleep, um, which was the other, you know, directed by the same guy, Mike Flanagan, who, as I know, is a friend of the show. Um, mm-hmm. Which before I even get into this, it is a little like I'm talking about a guy's movie that. I know you have on the show and uh, arguably is going to listen to it. Maybe. Oh, he's yeah. definitely going to listen to it. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. Him and Kate both, I can almost guarantee it. So oh, yes. Pick your words carefully, Charles. <laughs> yes, yes. That's why That's why I have notes. I made, I, I, uh, I wrote down my thoughts. Um, but, First of uh, all, fuck Mike Flanagan. Second of all. <laughs> exactly, that guy. Uh, no, I, I really, I was very, very impressed with it. But I, you know, so I hadn't watched it and I'd seen a lot of his other stuff. I, I loved Bly in particular. I thought Bly Manor was, was exceptionally good. And I thought Dr. Sleep, both cuts, the director's cut is, is like a unbelievably good and, and su- good in subtle ways. Like the way that that movie's yeah. better than the original cut is, is kind of even almost hard to quantify. It just feels better. Mm. Um, yes, right. It's yeah, longer, it's just, but feels shorter. Yeah, which is yeah. always the mark of like a really great director's cut because it's all in in pacing. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so, so there was that, and then um, so I just wanted to watch the movie it, I, because I remember it had dropped on Netflix. I intended to watch it. It slipped past me, and so this was seemed like a good chance to do that. Um, but I also was really interested in because I remembered the book. You know, I had only read it once before the reread for this, and what I remembered of it was was really just the the central conceit of of Jesse Burlingame, who's the main character, um, being handcuffed to the bed by her husband as part of a sex thing, and then husband dies, and she's got to figure out how to get out get out of the handcuffs and survive. And I had forgotten what the book actually is, which is really not that. Like that is that is kind of almost like a framing sequence for what the book actually is. And so I I was mm. very interested to see, you know, just look at it again. I mean, when you because I read it when it first came out, which was 1992. Uh, so it's 20 years mm-hmm. later and I read it when I was probably around 18 and my views as a person were probably pretty different when I was 18 than they are now. And so it just, I don't know, it just all, all those reasons seems like it would make sense. Uh, and it was also something you guys hadn't done, which was a big, you know, you've yeah, hit those I'm, ones already. So I was surprised when you picked this one, uh, because I don't know. When we started this uh, podcast, I kind of assumed that that would be a title that one of our female guests would have a lot to say about and leap on. And mm-hmm. we have yet to speak to any, not a single one of our female guests has ever requested that title or even mentioned it in the lead up to them doing an episode. So we knew we wanted to do an episode on it. 
I was kind of waiting for that to happen and it, it just never did. I certainly want to hear the female perspective on this movie, but, Absolutely. Uh, but also I love this fucking movie and I'm ready to talk about it, you know? Yeah. So it was kind of like, totally. well, um, yeah, let's do it. You know, <clears throat> yeah. it's, All right. uh, can, can we start with the book or yeah, please sure. explain the plot in a little more detail for anyone who hasn't read it? Absolutely. So Gerald's game is a story about Jesse Burlingame uh, and her husband, Gerald Burlingame who are well, a well-off couple. They're in their, I think, late 30s, maybe early 40s. I think Gerald's a little older than Jesse. And they, their marriage is, is sort of in a, in, a, in a slump, I guess you could say. They, they go out to their lake house, which is a beautiful, kind of gorgeous, uh, you know, rich person's house out on the lake. And um, it's the middle of the afternoon, and they're going to try this, this sexy thing that they've kind of been playing around with for a little while. It's mostly at Gerald's impetus. It's his thing more than Jesse's, but she's willing to go along. The idea is that he's going to handcuff her to the bed and then they're going to have like a little bondage scenario and it's going to be, you know, hopefully thrilling and exciting and, and go to completion for everyone involved. <laughs> and, um, but when it's happening, Jesse, when it's so, so Jesse gets handcuffed to the bed, the handcuffs she's wearing are these like super intense police handcuffs. And, um, Gerald kind of latches them quite tightly and she's like, I don't like this. I want out. Stop. And Gerald's doesn't. And, and he kind of, it's, it's very clearly drawn in both the book and the film that she's dead serious. He knows she's serious, but plays it off as like a joke. And that, like, he thinks she's joking and that pisses her off. And so she, she, you know, basically kicks out, attacks him. He has a heart attack and he drops dead. And so now you have Jesse handcuffed to this bed with this huge headboard. Her arms are above her sort of crucifixion style. And uh, she can't, she can't free herself. The key is on the dresser. She can't figure out a way to get out. And then there's all these other elements that start coming into the story at this point. That's kind of your setup. But then you start mm -hmm. accessing her repressed trauma from an event that happened when she was 10 uh, which we'll talk about more in a second when we talk about the book. See, something very bad happened to her when she was a child, and she kind of, kind of accesses that to figure out how she's going to get out of the handcuffs. There's a there's a stray dog uh, that happens to be very hungry and happens to be in the neighborhood, uh, and and overcomes his revulsion at the idea of eating human flesh to eat some human flesh. Their front door happens to be open, so he can slip in. Uh, one of many weird coincidences in this book. And then the other, the biggie, the weirdest thing about this book is is Raymond Andrew jo Jobert. So in, in the story, as Jesse's handcuffed to the bed, it takes place over several days. She's stuck there getting weaker and weaker, thirstier and thirstier, trying to get free. And, and she sees this kind of presence there at, at night, on the first night. Uh, and she thinks there's something in the room with her watching her, which is very creepy in both book and film. Mm -hmm. And she's not sure it's really there. She, it's sort of like the embodiment of death has come to sort of just watch her die. And over the course of the film, she, she starts to wonder if that thing is actually there and if it's going to come back the second night and the second night it's going to kill her. So she feels like she has to get free before that happens. Uh, and so it's this kind of this weird race against time. And all the while, you're not sure if that's real or if she's just hallucinating because of everything that's happening to her. Uh, and, and then by the end of the book, which I guess I will, I will spoil as well. This is a spoiler show. Oh, yeah. Totally. Um, oh, yeah. You find out that, that Raymond Jobert, in fact, is the, the thing she saw in her room was, in fact, a real human being with acromegaly or acromegaly, whatever, the, the sort of giantism syndrome. And yeah was also like a, a pedophile grave robber, like the like every monstrous thing you could dump on a person <laughs> other than the genetic disorder, which is obviously not that person's fault. They they dump on this person and that person 
and then like a serial killer, like ate his mom. I don't know all these terrible things. Mm-hmm. And, and this is a Republican. Yeah, <laughs> terrible shit. Just happened to be in the neighborhood at the same time. Happened to go into the house. Happened to watch Jesse as she was like trying to get free at night. Like it does not make sense. And so when you have to sort of take this book and film apart, you kind of have to look at it from almost a fable kind of lens, which is okay. But he happens to be there. And the kind of last act of the book is Jesse trying to convince herself that the dude was that was real, was actually there, because she she doesn't want to think she went crazy. And then the cops kind of finally arrest this guy. And then she goes and confronts him at the end of the book and is kind of like, look, I know you were real and I'm strong enough. I'm not afraid of you anymore. And like spits in his face and you know, that's, right. that's kind of the end. So that's a lot of plot. The overarching thematic thing is really that you have a woman who is deeply traumatized as a child by her father. And over the course of the movie, sort of in three vignettes, if you think about it that way, is confronted by three men, her, her father, her husband, and this monster who all embody sort of terrible treatment and trauma toward her. And, uh, and then she has to try and get free of it literally and figuratively. So that's what Gerald's game is. I would say. Right. Right. And she like imposes a lot of the horrors that her, the real life horrors, not, not the kind of more fictiony. What is that monster in the corner? You know what, you know, that kind of thing, or even later on the serial killer, you know, that most people don't encounter in their life, but she like superimposes a lot of uh, her father and what he did to her onto this thing, which is why it's so cathartic at the end. Whenever she, she, um, you know, kind of tells him off. And, uh, and I think Flanagan did a pretty spectacular fucking job, by the way, um, of conveying that in the movie, um, to the point where like he'll flash between her, uh, her dead husband, her, her father and this guy, you know, when she's confronting him, mm-hmm. um, as if they're all the same, the same thing. Cause in her mind, you know, they, they all represent a similar trauma and threat to her, as you said. And, and like uh, her words in the the movie, I think I don't remember if this is exactly how it is in the book, but in the movie, she she doesn't like get angry. She doesn't like try to hit him or anything. She just says, "You're smaller than than I remember." And yeah. and uh, and yeah, I, I don't know. I just thought that was so beautiful and just a way for her to like. Obviously, she's never gonna fully move on. You know, her trauma is part of her, and that's kind of you know true of everybody. But it's um. You know, it, she's been able to compartmentalize it a little bit, and to see that she's bigger than than what she is built up in her mind. You know, over over the time. So. It's a great final line. It's also a callback to an earlier scene where young Jesse goes to the lake house with her dad, mm. and she said, "Like her first line is, it's smaller than I remember." And uh, Henry Thomas's character says, "Well, that's because you got bigger." It's a great ending line, no matter how you cut it, but it's even hmm. better with that context. You know, this is just that's just the the magic of Flanagan, baby. All of his Stephen King adaptations have this level of thought and craft put into them. And on this on this particular one. Like, I'm sure I've said this on the show before, but when I first heard that someone was doing a Gerald's game movie, I was like, well, whoever that person is, is out of their fucking minds doing a Gerald's game <laughs> movie. Like, what on earth are you thinking? There's such an exploitative version of this movie that exists totally. that I I kind of assumed that's what it was going to be. And, you know, he proved me wrong. And then he basically did the same thing with Dr. Sleep, although I didn't think that one was going to be exploitative. I just thought I, I just didn't really like the book and saw no way towards fashioning it into a successful movie. But he has more than acquitted himself as the guy to go to to wrangle 
problematic or troublesome uh, King properties onto the screen, for sure. We're kind of talking around the thing that happens in, in both book and film that is that's mm. particularly like troubling, I think, to put on, on screen. Like, and right. the, the thing that happens to Jessie when she's 10 is her father like abuses her like very graphically in the like incredibly graphically in the book uh mm -hmm. and and a little bit less graphically in the film but like you know it's like it's it's full-on sexual abuse of a 10 year old girl by her father and and i've got a daughter eric's I, eric's met my daughter and uh you know for me it was like when i when i picked up the book to read it again i saw it like at the the chapter headers have this little graphic of an eclipse and i was like oh shit right. that's right that's what this book has in it and I had I had forgotten about it, and then I was reading it, and I I couldn't believe how in depth King decided to go with that. It to me it seemed kind of excessive. Like you didn't, I don't think he needed to go that far with it. To I, I mean, I, I don't know when the last time is you guys read the book, but it's it's by far, in my opinion, the worst sort of stuff he's ever put on the page and that might be mm. because i'm coming to it from the perspective of a dad with a 15 year old daughter but it's really egregious i think and yeah it's a horror book and it's supposed to be egregious and all that stuff but i i wanted to sort of so i'm writing i'm i write novels and just everything else i do and i'm in the middle of my my fourth novel right now and and one of the things that you find out when you're writing a novel is that you have you really have to put your head in this other headspace so when you're writing a book you have to you have to create an entire secondary world you have to make people who live in it and all of it has to be as literally as real as possible and the more real it is the more you can put your head there as opposed to here at the desk sitting and typing the better the book tends to be and what happens when you do that at least from my perspective is you 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 really do draw on the subconscious, like all that. I don't know where ideas come from. Characters take, take on a life of their own. They start doing things, you know, like all the stuff that writers talk about is is really just because you're putting your head in this other world and you kind of are observing it as opposed to, you know, making Dictating it up. It. A lot of times when I'm writing a novel, I don't realize what I'm writing about until after, like I'm deep into it or even like much later I look at it or somebody will say something to me and be like, oh, isn't that character or didn't you do? And I'm like, holy shit, I did do that. And so... When I read Gerald's Game, I was like, why would anyone choose to write about a woman who is basically being like her whole life is defined by these by horrible interactions with men? As far as we know, he's writing a woman who is who is desperately trying to escape from the men in her life, even even the monster at the end. Right. Like that's what she's trying to do. And I don't know if you guys remember, but the way that she escapes the monster as she's getting out, so she's out of the handcuffs. The monster is in the house. The serial killer is in the house. And the way that she escapes him is by giving him an offering, like giving him an offering, right. a little bag of trinkets. And the offering she gives him is her wedding band. Right. And so, mm -hmm. yeah. so you have a woman who's escaping literal, the literal handcuffs that her marriage put on her, the wedding band that she was given. Um, she's, she's escaping the darkness into the light of day and all, all the other things that she does that are all kind of connected with, to me, one idea, right? Which is that this book, I looked it up, was written in 1991 and it's dedicated to King's wife, Tabitha and, and her mm -hmm. sister. So a bunch of wonderful women. Right. And 1991, and I might have the timing off, but I, I, it didn't, I looked this up too, and it seemed to be right, is right when he kind of came out of his really dark period of the really rough years when he was very, you know, addiction and all the other things that he had to deal with. So if you're coming out of that time and you're writing a book about a woman who is trapped, you know, by, by the, the men in her life, like he's, I think he's, he's, it's almost an apology. Like he's understanding 
where he's 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 writing about what he did to his wife uh consciously or unconsciously during those bad years and and writing a, a book about a woman who's trapped and escaped and and how painful and how how horrifying and how everything you know it must have been for her to go through all that i think is is kind of what he was you know was working working, working through I mean, the, yeah, that's that's just my my guess. I don't know if that it's, rings true with you guys, but it's an interesting theory, and it's it's also interesting in light of the fact that this isn't the only uh, sort of book he wrote along these lines at that time. He also wrote Rose Matter, mm-hmm. which you know is you know an, about a, a, an abused. It's about abused women, you know, overcoming you know the the toxic masculinity in their lives. In that case, it's there, it's Norman, a fucking cop that. Mm-hmm. You know, and there's there's another one. Well, yeah, I'm I'm getting there. Yeah. Dolores Claiborne, which also thematically similar, that has uh, a direct line to to Gerald's. Right. You know, these these three novels seem like a a unofficial trilogy to me. And I don't know. I don't know what he was working through during that time. But I, I do think that's as as good of a theory as I've ever heard. Right. Well, well, the eclipse in, in Gerald's game is the same eclipse where Dolores kills uh, her husband, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. It's it's supposed to be the same. They're on, on the, the, side of the lake. On Little yeah. Tall. Yeah. yeah. If if Flanagan did yeah. uh, a Dolores Claiborne movie, you know that it would be filmed exactly with that same, you know, eclipse shot. Mm-hmm. That, right. You know, it would be framed the same way. I can imagine it very easily. Um, yeah, they're they're directly connected through that eclipse. What do y'all think about the use of the eclipse as the sort of the the joining force in those two events? Hmm. Well, it's darkness coming into a place of light, right? It's darkness appearing where there is no, you know, you can't do anything about it. You can't, it's not like you can like stop an eclipse. Eclipse going to mm-hmm. happen and it's it's happening because of forces that are completely beyond your control and, and there's darkness. Um, and I mean, I don't think it's, I mean, that's that's how I would read it. I don't think you have to go much deeper than that, but you know, get no, on I the think show. That's, that's right. That's that's what it I for, said. It for certainly for Gerald's game represents that. Like it is interesting to see what the eclipse represents for two different women in two, you know, different situations. You know, one's a, a young girl who's having the trauma, you know, happen to her during the eclipse, and you have um Dolores who is you know, who is taking action against her abuser. Right. You know, in the mm-hmm. eclipse. So it, it really is a, you know, an interesting line where the same event is, you know, in the same area being witnessed at the same time means two different things to two different people. I don't really read the eclipse for Dolores as being as, you know, as being, you know, darkness. It, it's her ability to, I guess it is in a way because it is her ability to in the, in the shadow undercover, essentially rid herself of, you Murder know, a, of a monster in her life. Yeah. Right? Yeah. 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 Um, but but the, it's two di- it's you know one thing that means two different things for two different people who are dealing with very heavy uh, abuse. There's a term paper that can be written about uh, yeah. uh, about King's use of that that one event and how that ties um, people together. And I love how Flanagan goes out of his way in the movie to you know it, to just have her talk about the dream of she's saying that she dreamed of being in the perspective of of the husband in the well essentially right because she's saying that she dreamed about looking up at the woman during the eclipse yeah mm-hmm. and and that's you know pretty 
pretty spectacular. And I, and I love that, you know, that there's the all things serve the beam is, is brought mm-hmm. up and, yeah. Yeah. you know, it, it, so you have that dark tower connection and, and, and I just, I, th- this is what I love about Flanagan throwing that shit into the movie. And he made, you know, his hundred million dollar shining, you know, sequel and, you know, had, Dick Halloran talk about Ka and stuff mm-hmm. that makes no fucking sense to literally <laughs> 99% of the people walking into the theater, but he doesn't care. And he gets it in all this stuff because that is essential King that everything is connected. That is that, that is the first shared universe that I was ever aware of was, uh, <laughs> was, was the Stephen King stuff. Yep. And I just love that. He always goes out of his way to bring that to his adaptations. Thousand percent. So, so with the, um, with the movie version, uh, you know this this film absolutely would not work uh if he had taken if he had made any missteps in casting you know mm-hmm, right. uh carlo gugino am i saying mm-hmm. that right gugino sure. just just kills this role and what she's asked to do here i i think that if you were looking at it only on a surface level you would say well most of the time she's just in bed and then the other mm-hmm. half of the time, she's, you know, witnessing herself like outside of herself. How hard could this have been? But it must have been tremendously difficult. What she pulls off in this movie is like next level shit. In my opinion, it's it's by far her best performance. I just can't imagine anyone else in that role. Yeah, I thought she was fantastic. And it 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 even goes back to the a really brilliant choice, I think, that Flanagan made in the script, if you're listening. Um, which is, which is that in the, in the book, um, so, so Jesse throughout the film, there's a, and the book, there's a conceit that Jesse is sort of talking to people who aren't there, hearing voices that aren't there because it's a way to get dialogue and discussion and analysis in without just being in her head the whole damn time. And in the book, she's talking to figures from her past. She's talking to her old college roommate, Ruth Neary, which is such a Stephen King name. I don't know. It like just struck me as the most... (laughs) Right. Ruth Neary. Um, yeah, she'd be a resident of a Castle Rock for sure. Totally. Ruth Neary. Um, so her and then her, her Nora Callahill, I think is her name, the the therapist. And then I think the good wife, goody wife, something like that. And then I think there might mm-hmm. maybe a, a young, the young version of herself, too. So in order to to make that work in the film, if you had done a literal adaptation, you'd have to do either voiceover with a bunch of people you've never seen, employ all this weird backstory and flashbacks to establish who these people are in her life take up a lot of real estate in the movie, whatever. And Flanagan cut all that out and had her just talking to herself and, and to, and to Bruce Greenwood, who plays um, Gerald in the film, very, very different casting than, than the Gerald in the book, but uh, awesome. Like Bruce Greenwood is, is perfect and everything. And so and like, she talks to them and so herself and, and her husband, and it lets you get an established sort of, it lets you establish who, who, who her husband kind of is to her and also lets you establish who she is to herself. And I don't know, I thought it was, it was so smart. It gave the actor so much more to do. I, I, that was one of the choices I thought was one of the best in the, in the whole adaptation. It was brilliant. Yeah. No, I, I think what's really fascinating about that angle to me is especially the way Flanagan does it. And you'll you have to forgive me. I'm a little uh, uh, hazy on the book. It's been, it's been many years since I've read it and I didn't have time to do it before, before this, I, I was trying to, but I couldn't make it, make it happen. But uh, just rewatching the movie, I really love how the story sets up that, that whole element isn't supernatural, right? It's not, yeah. she's not being haunted by the ghost of her husband or whatever. She is just representing that, you know, his voice in her mind. 
and his voice is is kind of the the shitty one and then the you know the way that that he, uh, Flanagan makes the visage of herself kind of the, the rational one like her ideal version of herself right she's not mm-hmm. she's not manipulating or whatever but the way that all this where they'll argue back and forth as if you know she's having an argument in her mind and how it's leading her to certain things that she knows already, but you know, is figuring out. It's such a brilliant way to cinematically show that pr- the thought process of, oh yeah, there's water above me, and and you know maybe I can I can get it. Maybe this memory that I have from from my childhood of cutting my hand, you know, maybe that that'll uh, it, you know trigger my uh, ability to escape. It's such a just a really smart way uh, to do it, and you cast these great. Great actors, you know, like you mentioned, Carla just is the only person really to play this part, and uh, and Bruce Greenwood, who you know he has a lot to do, and it's not very flashy. Um, and I, and if you'd asked me going into Gerald's game, if if the guy playing Gerald was going to be you know uh, an integral <laughs> role, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have, uh, I would have laughed in your face. But like, I do love the way that he plays Gerald as Gerald. And then he plays Gerald as her version or vision, the one that exists in her right, mind. Right. Um, and, and it is, it is such a nuanced performance. Um, I mean, everybody's great in this. Uh, you, you know, we t- haven't touched on Henry Thomas who plays her father yeah, in the flashbacks. Yep. Yeah. And, and it's right. It's so right. And I can't imagine going to any actor and saying here, I got a prime part for you. This is what you're going to do because the, the assault itself is handled very delicately. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's not well, exploitative. Not it is, like, you, well, in, in the movie, in the movie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yep. I mean, listen, it, it, book stuff is, it can be uncomfortable, but it's not the same as, as if showing, absolutely. showing, a, absolutely. showing that like visually in a movie. And sure. so it's, um, you know, it's the reason why the, the train sequence and it will never, uh-huh. you know, never be, yeah. be, be adapted. You can read that shit. You, you, you sure shit ain't shooting it. Um, uh, so, but, uh, the, the real monstrous part of the father is how he manipulates her yeah. afterwards. After and, mm-hmm. And uh, and I love that Flanagan underlines that in the movie where they're like he I think she even says to herself like that wasn't the the worst thing that he did, and yeah. and the That's way that the, the Bruce Greenwood husband character part of her mind <laughs> fucking reacts to that going what what mm-hmm. could possibly be worse and you know that herb you know, trying to still keep that buried deep. It's, it's, it's all very well done and nuanced in a way that I never would have imagined the movie would have been. Can I also say, you say Gerald wasn't a flashy part, um, and, and arguably, yeah, but but Bruce Greenwood, the thing that was flashy about Bruce Greenwood was when he uh, when he took off his uh, his clothes, and I found that very <laughs> frustrating because the dude is like 63 years old, and he looks like, you know, Brad Pitt in Fight Club. Um, <laughs> right, yeah. And, you know, fine, whatever, Hollywood trainers, the whole bit, but like, I, he didn't have to do that to us. I, that, was, that was not cool. <laughs> Um, yeah, it was cruel, actually. Yes, it was cruel. I think that's the way, you know, if you're going to underscore Gerald's cruelty, that's the way <laughs> to do it to the male to male viewers of a certain physique. Yeah, you, so, you can. I mean, maybe he's a super fit guy, you know, all the time. But like, uh, I never would have pictured that that would have been under the shirt. So I, I have to imagine that that's when you know you're going to be playing a part where you're going to be half naked. <laughs> you know, you're going to have your shirt off for 95% of your, your runtime that that, yeah. that might've gone into his thought process leading up to the movie. I, I'm sure it was painful and frustrating, but it, it certainly worked. Um, but <laughs> speaking of know, painful, 
let's talk about the degloving scene. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, in general, I think that's like the big takeaway for most people who see this movie. The first thing they want to talk about is the degloving scene. Net- when this came out, Netflix released a whole trailer and it was just Netflix employees reacting to to the degloving scene. Wow. This is one of the better practical effects I've seen in recent years, I think. And it looks <laughs> like it fucking hurts. Mm, you know, mm-hmm. you see a lot of gore effects in movies where it's either the shots not lingering long enough or the way the character is playing the wound afterwards or, or what have you. But the degloving scene in, in Gerald's game just really, really lets you sit and think about what's going on. You know, it, <laughs> it plays out for a long time, that scene. You know, I'm, I'm just curious what y'all's reactions were the first time you saw this. I mean, I had read Stephen King's version of it that like the day before, mm-hmm. um, which is also brutal. You know, again, I'm I'm coming to this book and this story with with the perspective that I have. So the so the abuse stuff probably landed a little bit harder, but this was right behind it because he goes into like you know tendons being scraped apart and like mm. all of like it's it's horrifying, 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 horrifying. And you like it it also really, really, really hurts because you can like the way he writes it, you can just completely imagine the feeling of that handcuff bracelet like trying to trying to scrape up over your hand and like i'm doing totally. it right now as, as we're talking and and then to see it the next day it was yeah it's like the way the skin kind of rucks up under the uh mm. yeah oh um, yeah it was uh i don't know how you do that i guess you get I, who did that you guys probably know who did the effects was it like B or do you know or i actually do not i don't know off the top of my head yes um, had to be one whoever of those really... it was fucking kicked ass. Um, and <laughs> yeah. I think it might have been augmented. We we can ask Flanagan about it next time he comes on the show. Ooh. But I think it it looks a little augmented to me where you can see because you do see like tendon snap like uh, underneath. Mm-hmm. But like the thing that sells it though, the thing that sells the pain to me is that practical flesh, and it looks like flesh, right? Mm-hmm. It doesn't. Sometimes in movies, you'll you'll see it's like, oh, yeah, that's definitely silicone. That's definitely it's not cutting right or whatever. But I, that is exactly the way I would imagine it would look like if I just decided to remove some of my skin and how it would hang. You know, like um, how when you watch American Werewolf in London and you see, you know, the um, uh, the Jack zombie that, that visits him and he's got the little dangly neck flap thing yeah. post werewolf attack. It's like. You see that and it affects everybody and everybody remembers a little jiggly neck flap because it just looks like what you would imagine flayed skin to look like. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and I, I get a similar vibe from from this. And and you also got to got to point out the setup because both in the book and in the movie, it's like there's a whole thought process that goes into it. And like it's not just. A, a shocking thing that happens. It's this terrible thing is coming. I know it's coming. I'm going yeah. to do it to myself. Mm-hmm. Prepare yourself. This is going to hurt. Uh, you know, just all this stuff, make a plan. Cause you're going to bleed out real quick. You yeah. know, if you, if you don't, so you can't just do it and then try to figure something out. So what are you going to do first? What are you going to do next? Like, make sure you do that or else you're never getting out of here. And, uh, what? Uh, this, yeah, it's such what, a great tension thing. What it made me think of a lot, what it reminded me of was 127 hours, right? The, the bit with um, right. James Franco when mm-hmm. he cuts his arm off and of he's, he's he's the hiker stuck in the thing. And that also was done in a way that was like, this is what it would be like to do it. And I'm somebody who has a hard time, like, 
when I see like a Blood Brothers scene in a movie and like they cut their palms or like, you know, you're going to become a vampire. So here I'm going to bite my wrist and you could like, I can't, I'm not really good at doing that. Like I can't, I can't really, (laughs) you know, cut my, I can't do it. And so the idea, I feel like I would probably, I would probably still be in those handcuffs if it were me, like, because she's got to, you know, she's got to use that piece of glass to cut her, cut all, you know, her wrist open. And like, I just couldn't, I don't think I could, could do it no matter what sort of survival situation I was in. So it's, yeah, this, do you think, do you think you could do it, Eric? I'd like to think so, but I'm, I'm kind of with, with Charles here because there's, Cause I remember when I was a kid, like that was just a, (laughs) that was the thing in movies and stuff. Like, I think they even do it like in my girl, they become like blood brothers or, you know, whatever they like prick their thumbs or something. And I tried to do that with my friends and like, we, I just couldn't fucking like it hurt too much. I'm like, no, I'm not doing this. Like we tried and it just never fucking uh, worked out. I mean, let alone, it wasn't a a good idea, you know, growing up in the eighties, like intermingling your blood with other people. Um, mm-hmm. But, uh, well, I'd like to say 10 year olds, presumably. Well, yeah, sure. maybe, you know, they were probably I don't know. All right. we, we, we saw the, the Ryan white made for TV movie in class a bunch of oh. times. Oh. They might've had blood transfusions. Yikes. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I'd like to say yes, that, that I would do it. Um, I don't think so. Like if I'm being honest with myself, I don't know if, if uh, I would just die on the bed. I would I procrastinate so long that I, by the time, like I'd psych myself up to do it. I I wouldn't have the strength to do it. It'd probably be my guess. You know, I think what I would do, I would rather like, this is, and this is just, I don't know, like who knows, right? This is like tough talk at the bar kind of thing. But like, I feel like I would probably rather try to just pull my hand through and like have it break that way, like break my bones almost than Mm, cut myself like that. I don't know. Yeah. See, yeah. I, I think I would do that too. There's something less visceral about that, I guess, because of the there would be a lack of blood. But given the options she has, you know, Mm -hmm. with like a piece of glass, like you couldn't like another solution would be cut your thumb off, you know, which, you know, that's going to fuck your hand up for the rest of your life. You know, no opposable thumb. But I think I would prefer that than the degloving just because of how repulsive it is. Yeah, yeah, I would. Yeah, gross. (laughs) <laughs> it's just it's so grotesque i think i would try to pulverize my fucking hands you know do whatever i could to just smash that shit down to to powder or or yank it through and it also depends on how tight the handcuffs are like if you've ever fucked around with handcuffs in bed chances are you're not using police grade handcuffs you know the are handcuffs you get at the the adult store that, mm-hmm. you know, typically have like a little furry thing on them or they've, they've got that safety switch so you can sort of bounce out if push comes to shove. You know, right. police grade handcuffs. Fuck, man. You're not getting out of those. You're just mm-hmm. not. If they're like super tight. Um, Charles, it's been a while since I've read the book. Uh, is there a mention in there of how tight there Gerald is? The, the way that he handles it in the book is that Gerald uh like makes he's so excited that he got the real deal handcuffs from like he went to some like dealer at a fair or something like that and he bought real ones but the ones he bought were like you know model 17m as opposed to model 17f and 17m is for men and 17f is for women so even when you you close it as tightly as you can it's still sort of size for a, the, the thicker wrist of a dude and so that's basically the only reason she's able to get out is that even though it's kind of about mm, okay. as tight as it can go, there's a little more give. Yeah, but with with give, you could, I think you might be able to do it. If it's on there so tight, you just like, there's no give. 
I don't think you could pull it through. Yeah. But yeah, I think I would do something about it versus just laying there until I fucking died. I think at a certain point, panic and adrenaline would take over and that would just be that. You know, you you you'd come to a point, I think, where you would flip out and it would it, it would be like a you know, uh, an animal chewing its own leg off to get out of a bear trap. You'll just do whatever the fuck you have to do to to make this stop happening. Yeah. So, I mean, they, they make a big point in the in the book of how, like, since she's essentially sort of self-crucified or like, I mean, Gerald crucified, whatever. She's crucified. And so she, her ability to breathe is getting harder and harder for her to breathe. And she's right. getting weaker and weaker. And like, there's all that, like her, her shoulders aren't working well. And so she's kind of, she is kind of running out of time. But I, I mean, that was one of the things when I remember reading this book in whatever, 92, that was so, that really, that's what stuck with me back then more than the other stuff uh, was the puzzle of it. You know, like everything we're kind of kicking around right now, like how if you were stuck in this, what would you do? How would you, what would you have been smarter than she was? And, or maybe not, you know, who knows? But um, it was uh yeah, it was, and, and it felt that way watching the movie too. It was really, it was, it was really well done. Even though I knew how she was going to get out, it was still awesome right. to watch her figure it out. Like the pacing of how she came to the conclusions and all that, I thought was really good. My main memory of watching that scene was like the first viewing at Fantastic Fest, right. and I believe this was yeah, the year was after uh, Green Room uh, screened. Mm. And in Green Room, there's this, uh, you know, part where the guy reaches his arm through a, a doorway. Mm-hmm. And it gets like hacked to literal ribbons by a dude with a machete. Right. Yeah. And then he pulls his fucking ruined arm back in through the door. And to this day, that's the loudest response I've ever heard from a crowd. You know, <laughs> just people screaming, just outright screaming when this happened. Um, Gerald's game came very close to matching that energy when it <laughs> happened. There's something about the way that Saulnier filmed that moment in green room that, it just something about the ruination of the arm yeah. and and the way it's just kind of flopping is so just upsettingly real. You know, you this is seeing a fucking arm mangled, you know, uh, it's a little more contained in in Gerald's game. But I, I recall very specifically being in that in that first screening and just hearing the audience go fucking bananas when she starts pulling the fucking pulling her hand through. Which is an experience that most uh, most people didn't get, you know. But at the same time, oh, that's the, true. No, no, no studio in the world would have made Gerald's game, let alone released it in a three thousand screen. So I'm happy that Netflix stepped up and let it happen. Uh, but it is a it is a bummer because that is like a peak audience moment. I mean, that's I had true. a different reaction watching it at home last night. Um, you know, rewatching it than I did then because I was curious about how because you know, like we said, we know what's coming up um, there, and so I was curious how everybody else was going to react versus a little bit more than uh, I was like into the moment myself. But when I was watching it last night and it was happening, like it wasn't even the degloving part; uh, it was the lead up where whenever she like lodges that chunk of glass into yeah. the. Mm-hmm. into the uh, the shelf and then like it isn't even the wrist it's when she goes up the fucking hand like arnold schwarzenegger in terminator 2 like up the palms and her the palm or whatever and the blood's just like falling in a sheet down her arm that like i just i uncontrollably i just started like shaking my my hand like it was a limp noodle <laughs> you know just out of like sympathy sympathy pains you know i mean the movie i mean kind of lived and died on that effect and they they certainly 
killed it. You know, no, you know, it was, it was, it was perfect. Um, but all right. So, so putting the degloving aside, which we all agree was masterful in yeah. both versions, I think. Um, right. there were, there were two other things I wanted to talk about with you guys with, Oh wait, can this. I interrupt what? very, yeah, very yeah, yeah. quickly? I, I texted Flanagan about who did the effects on the degloving. Oh, scene. All right. Good time. Uh-huh. What, uh, what did you say? Robert Kurtzman. The, uh, the K of, of K and B, even though he, yeah. uh, yeah, he, he split ways with Nicotero and burger. Yeah. Thanks Mike. Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, so, so the, the two things I wanted to, to, to talk about, I want to talk about like the end, right. And like, and the serial, like all of that weird, the, the, because I think when people criticize this, they really criticize the, how random that is. Um, hmm. And I looked at some reviews and like the way it, it really does feel kind of like a hat on a hat to have this randomly, there's a serial killer who happens to be in the neighborhood that day. Um, but the other thing that I, that I, the, the only real hole I saw in all of this is that I think Jesse's trauma from what happened to her as a kid is not really adequately expressed in the present day, right? Like there's not a real line drawn between that and what happens to her in with Gerald, right? Because what she does with Gerald to me, like, it's not like hugely transgressive. Like you were saying, Scott, like people, people do that shit. Like people buy like bondage in bed is not really that. I don't even think it was that big a deal in 1992. It's pretty so vanilla me, at this point. Yeah, right. exactly. So to me, it doesn't necessarily seem like this is the decision of a woman who's so traumatized that she can't like, you know, she can't be her own woman. She can't be her own person. It 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 was like, OK, this is something that happens and she's got to sort of figure it out. But like the, the thing that I think both the book and the movie were kind of missing is some indication of what Jesse's life was like in between those two moments, right? Like the, the decisions she made, the way that she lived, the things that she did or didn't do, what her marriage to Gerald was actually like on a day-to-day basis, because they, in, like in the book, they kind of had a pretty good life. It sounded like boring maybe, but, but not bad. And um, I think the movie goes into it even sort of in less detail. And so I, I, I think something that showed like how that, that terrible event, definitely had to have an effect effect on her as, a, as as an adult but we never see it we never feel it it's just something that was and i think some indication of you know what what happened to her and how it how it affected her choices going forward would have would have helped um because it didn't even seem like in the book and in the film it really didn't seem like she had really suppressed it like she remembered what happened she was able to access it really easily it wasn't like a big you know she didn't talk about it but it's something that she you know she endured and and you know, so I don't know. Do you do you agree or am I just kind of talking out of out of nowhere? Boiling it down. What is the exact question? The exact question is this. I think that there is not shown. You don't see what the problems that adult Jesse's having that. But the whole thesis of the movie is that this is a woman whose life is governed by the trauma of what happened to her when she was 10. You don't mm-hmm. actually see that in the movie. So what is she overcoming? You know, she, she has a, she, something bad happened to her. We don't necessarily see how that's it's just too it's it's a little i understand there's a metaphor she's handcuffed by it her husband puts her in handcuffs whatever i just wanted to see a little bit more literalization of it as opposed to it all being metaphorical does that make sense i i see what you're saying but i also think like i don't know how you fit that into the movie without making it too long frankly Mm. you know or or um I feel like I don't I, I feel like the inciting incident between her and her father is enough. I don't I don't really need to see what happened in the meantime between young Jesse and Gugino. 
this is something that King's dealt with before um, as well. I mean, this is Beverly Marsh, right? This is a girl who, mm-hmm. uh, you know, was, was abused by her father. Uh, you know, in that case, it was physical that was burgeoning on the sexual. Um, uh, but then, uh, you know, grew up and ended up kind of marrying a facsimile of her, of her father. And that yeah. I think that that line is, is what is there. And I think they mention it where he's not, He's not the monster that her father was, but, you know, same profession, you know, older man. And, you know, especially, you know, when it his his predilection for, you know, these rape fantasies come up, you know, that's another line drawn for her. I I don't know. I think most of it, it really is just about her not forgetting her trauma or solving the problem of her trauma, but embracing that and in a survival situation, embracing the the past trauma and overcoming it in a way, but but not like forgetting about it. It's not it's not really about losing sight of that. It's really just about embracing it. I think it's and that's in, mm-hmm. I think in the movie that they show that you know when she uh, survives and you know uh, she she she's still working through it, but she's doing it as a way to help others. You know in a in trauma centers. I don't really feel like the that the it's missing too much because at the heart of it, it really is a survival story and all this stuff just plays in into it. Uh, so I never really felt that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And to go back to something you were saying earlier, Charles, about the idea that the, the space cowboy or the, the moonlight man, as he's known in the movie being a hat on a hat, I can't tell people how to watch movies, but it seems very clear to me that his purpose in the novel and the book is to serve as this physical manifestation of the the horrible uh, masculinity that she's dealt with in her life. And, you know, by the, by, by the time mm-hmm. she gets free, by the time she sees him in court or whatever at the end of the movie, you know, Gerald's fucking long dead. Her dad's p- presumably dead. Mm-hmm. Um, here's the, the physical manifestation for her to look dead in the eye and confront and sort of you know, finalize her freedom and, and her right. overcoming this, this trauma. So, uh, so if okay. anyone watched the movie and was just like, I don't understand why this is here. Like, I don't understand how you're watching this movie. Like, I that's, don't understand not- how you're processing <laughs> information that's being given to you. That's that's yes, that's super clear. And it's super well done. And I think it's, it's the same way in the book. It's more like the choices for the choices that King and then Flanagan, because those are the choices available to him. Um, made in that character are weird to me right like why was he a grave robbing like like why was he all the things that he was um particularly so for example they make they make a point in both book and movie of saying that he was not he only had sex with the male corpses you know and so like so he wasn't interested in her that way but yet everything all of the other two men like, like, what was he going to take from her? He's, was he just going to kill her? He didn't seem to be presented as that way. He was like, an, he was going to take her life by by not doing anything and letting her die there in front of him, I think. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe maybe this is well, just I, it, it seems well, like that he is that he is a, a pedophile, that he is a grave robber, that he's a serial killer, that he's all these things, you know, Cannibal. I, under, yeah. I understand Cannibal. it's a lot for for one character to be shouldering. <laughs> I guess for me, it's just the man would have, you know, 
the space cowboy would have been a monster with like one of those things. And it just felt like it was, it was like the degloving scene, right? It just kept like adding and adding and adding and adding. And I was like, wow, Stephen King really, again, this is, I'm approaching it from guys writing a book right now. And I'm like, if I were writing this book, I don't, it didn't need to be all those things. And it was a bunch of weird choices all kind of jumbled together that, that were beyond what was necessary for, to achieve the goal, which you very clearly and correctly laid out, Scott. So Mm. I don't know. It's just, it's just funny to, He's written a ton of books too. Like I'm, I'm, on, I'm only really on my fourth, although I've written a billion <laughs> comics. So, like by the time I'm on my fiftieth, I might, I, I might just, you know, maybe I'll do the same thing because it's fun. Who knows? To be fair, well, I mean, King- it could just be a matter of the fact that it's a horror novel, and yeah. of course, you're going to make the, the ultimate. Well, I don't know if he's the ultimate evil in this story. I think that the father is the ultimate evil, but. The, the the personification of the evil, the space cowboy. He's all of those things because because it's a horror novel. You know, you mm-hmm. you want like the sickest fucking character there. I think that when the space cowboy comes in there and discovers her there, he's like, well, I'm not interested sexually, you know. But here's another form of punishment that I can be dealing out, and really not having to lift a finger to do it. I can just stand here in the corner and watch. You know, well, uh, and that's that's also putting a, a little a little on the reader too, because the as the reader we are the space jockey as well, right? We're we're st- sitting there watching space the, cowboy. You're thinking you're thinking alien. Sorry. Yeah, sorry, <laughs> space cowboy. Yeah, that's what I meant to say. Um, he's voyeuristic in that sense, sure. Uh, but you also have to keep in mind that that King, the way he writes, is is very in the moment he doesn't really outline he doesn't he might have an idea of where he's going and and try to write towards that but that all all changes i would you know bet you money that when he introduces this character at the beginning he didn't know that like this is a guy that is you know he's yep. a, a pedophile you know corpse raper you know it's like that <laughs> I, I he just like this is i'm going to have this kind of nightmarish figure the worst thing that you can imagine materialize kind of out of the darkness in the corner. If you're trapped into a room by yourself right, at night. Right. Right. And, and that's where it starts. And then it, it adds on to there. And by the time you're at the end of the book, he's also King has, you know, thematically set up her childhood trauma, mm-hmm. you, you know, a, a sexual abuse. And he's throwing everything that he's established that would mean something to Jesse into this character. This is a guy that, right. you know, much like the dog who's eating the husband, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and we find out that he's, you know, also taken part in eating the husband. You know, it's like every horror she's reliving or experiencing fresh is represented in one character. And that's this guy. And so I think it, I think it works. And I don't think it's any less ridiculous than, you know, I don't know any, you know, uh, you know, ghosts in a haunted hotel, you know, sure, yeah, yeah. Uh, look, I mean, you we know, can absolutely turn, we can. turning an, an alcoholic back to booze or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. a recovering mm-hmm. alcoholic back to booze. But it's, you know, I, I think it works and I think thematically it works and, and uh, visually and in the moment, it's like Scott oh was God. saying, it's a horror book visually in the moment. Fantastic. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it reminded me a whole lot of the um, the uh, the monster in Tad's closet in uh, in Cujo, like the way that that uh, this is described where it's, you know, again, it's just somebody in a bed, you know, terrified looking at something that they can't really make out and they don't know if it's real or not, but they know that there's something horrific there. But even if it's just in their mind, you know, something is there that's terrifying them. Yeah. And they and they cast the perfect guy too, right? Like it's I I didn't know his I feel like I should know his name and I didn't. I looked it up. It's Carol Striken, 
um, mm-hmm. who was obviously the giant in Twin Peaks and so many other. He was Grandpa Flick right. in uh, Doctor Sleep. Um, right, right. So so good, and just I don't know. Like he, I, it was it was definitely definitely very very frightening. Uh, and yeah, and when you really need a frightening worked. screen presence, you call that guy in. Like, <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. Good lord! All right, so those are those are the things. That's what I had to say about Gerald's game. <laughs> I, I don't know that I have more, honestly. Eric, is there anything else you want to talk about? Yeah, I mean, I think we covered it. It's, um, you know, I think the only thing that I'd want to underline, um, and it was something that I brought up when talking about Henry Thomas, um, <laughs> I, I can't imagine, you know, one taking that part and having to get into that headspace. And it's not even the act, it's it's how he plays the manipulation in that scene. I re- on this latest rewatch, that scene where he is talking his daughter into desiring to keep this a secret to me is the most fucked up thing that I've seen in years. Like, and the way that, that Henry Thomas plays it is so perfectly abhorrent. You know, it's like, you can see the wheels, the gears turning. You can see him using Mm -hmm. her fear of her mother and how her mother would react to this against her. And I guess the thing that really got me about it is I, instantly imagine like this is what happens every day when totally you know when yep. when an abuser you know is your child abuser is is um with their you know with their victim and and it's like just the emotional manipulation there is like to me 20 times worse than fucking pennywise talking georgie into the sewer you know what i mean it's like sure there's just something authentic about it that really struck me uh, in a way and got under my skin in a way that, that I wasn't anticipating. And so I just wanted to highlight that scene Yeah. again. It's not what you really think of when you think of Gerald's game, you think of the, you know, the degloving scene, or you think of the moonlight man coming out of the shadows of the mm-hmm. movie or just heard chained to the bed or whatever. Um, those are the images you think of, but like, to me, that is the most horrific scene in the movie. And it is played so perfectly by the young uh, actress. It's played perfectly mm-hmm. uh, by Henry Thomas. And I can't imagine the headspace he that both of them must have been in one when doing that scene knowing well, Flanagan well, I'm sure that that he protected he protected that uh you know yeah, that young actress and yeah but uh like you know but in terms of Henry Thomas like it just it, it's it's amazing to me it's like you know um it, it reminds me of like Willem Dafoe and autofocus if you remember mm-hmm. he has that fucking horrific scene where he's really excited no not autofocus in uh Kinsey sorry he in, in, in autofocus, he's he's a, a creep too, but he's in uh, in Kinsey. Like he has this one walk on part where he um, uh, he talks to Liam Neeson's character and super excited because this is a guy that's free about you know all sex and you know gay yeah. sex is fine and all this other stuff in a time when you know breaking taboos wasn't culturally a thing. And he comes in very excited because he's a pedophile and is excited to talk to Kinsey about it in the way that that Defoe plays that. I just can't imagine being in the headspace that these actors get into in these moments. And, um, you know, and I, it's a tribute to them that they're, you know, (laughs) they can keep their sanity and still delve into this kind of dark material. I I do think it's worth tagging onto this. The, okay. The scene, the scene with Henry Thomas manipulating the daughter into not, uh, saying anything and insidiousness of that, the emotional manipulation going on there. I think is also kind of mirrored in the experience we're having as an audience member watching Henry Thomas of all people do this. You're right. right. You know, most, yeah, most of us grew up like 
watching this kid grow up on screen. So right. there, there is a perversion going on there, much in the same way between Jesse and her father, uh, for us as viewers to see this guy who, you know, we know mostly as a kid, even though he's a fully grown man now, you know, that's, that's the memory you have of Henry Thomas. You think of E.T. And now it's this guy doing this shit. Like it's, mm-hmm. it, it packs a huge punch. And I'm, I'm certain that factored into the decision to cast him in this role. Well, did you guys see, um, did you watch Bly Manor? Um, it, yeah, it's okay. So he has a, he has a role in Bly Manor. That's it's not this, but it's also pretty like, there's this weird bit where he kind of has a doppelganger version of himself. And the doppelganger is just like, is terrifying. And it's the same kind of thing. Like I, I feel, I don't know if, if I were Henry Thomas, I don't know if I'd keep taking Mike Flanagan's phone calls, but you know, for roles, <laughs> but, uh, he's, he just, he, you know, I think he just, I don't know how, how that relationship works between the two of them or how they, how he gets him to go to those places. Uh, and obviously Henry Thomas is phenomenal, but yeah, I mean, that scene in the, in the book, I mean, this is the one, like the, the way that, that she as a kid and then as an adult has clearly worked herself into a headspace where she's like, sort of like, you know, it's okay. It happens, you know, like this is, you know, and I chose my family. I chose to not break up the family. And I like, he, he puts it in her head in such a way that she thinks she is the one with agency there, that she's making her own decisions, which she fucking isn't because she's 10 years old, you know, like you, yeah, there's a reason you're not allowed to like, you know, vote at eight, at 10, you know, and it, or drive a car, or do any, any other adult thing at 10, because you're not an adult and you can't, you can't mm-hmm. weigh things properly. You can't understand things properly. And, you know, mm-hmm. the dad, the Henry Thomas character after, you know, doing the terrible violation of the abuse in the first place, it really is worse to take, you know, to, to know what he's capable of doing to her mental, right. This is not the physical part, but like that he can, he can put her mm-hmm. in this place it doesn't even seem to really hesitate about it. He's like, you know what? My life is going to be fucked up if I, if this comes out and he's somehow rationalized it to himself. And so then he does this, this terrible thing and it sticks like it sticks in her head for the rest of her life. And this maybe, you know, like this is kind of what I was getting at before. Like I kind of wanted to see more of the things that happened to her, her, like it's not it's not well drawn enough that Gerald is a bad dude. You know, handcuffs to me does not necessarily immediately equivalent. You know, doesn't mean bad dude. So, right. um, but you know what? I it 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 was that doesn't really matter. That's just a dumb writer thing from me. But it, I don't know. I agree. The Henry Thomas scene was in a in a movie with a lot of in a book with a lot of scary shit. That really really stands out. Charles, this is usually this the point been, in the show well, where yeah, we... Uh, this has been a lighthearted conversation, hasn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Next thing, if you, if you guys ever have me back on, like, let's choose one of the stupid ones, right? Like something <laughs> we, can, we can laugh about, right? This is usually the point in the show where we allow our guests to tease whatever they're coming up with next or what you got on the horizon. Mm-hmm. You know, working with Star Wars, obviously, I uh, would presume that you're under a certain amount of secrecy. But uh, what do you got going on? What can you tell us? Right. So I'm doing I'm doing a bunch of Star Wars stuff, some of which I've talked about. I'm doing a big there's a big, huge Boba Fett story going on in the comics right now that is is a lot of fun because Boba Fett's so hot right now after Mandalorian and with the the TV show coming up at the end of the year. So that's fun. Uh, You can pick it up at comic shops. It's called The War of the Bounty Hunters. Has to do with Boba Fett trying to get Han Solo to Jabba uh, between Empire and Jedi. And it's all kinds of shit goes wrong. So that's that's a lot of fun. Um, I'm doing stuff, more stuff with the High Republic, which again, you know, Eric, we can talk about 
you know, anytime if you want. It's it's very it's very fun and cool. Um, and then I'm working on I have an, an ongoing image series called Undiscovered Country, which is just an ongoing comedy. You can check out lots of other work. And then I'm trying to finish this fourth novel, which uh, doesn't have horrible you know child abuse in it, but is still very <laughs> challenging for me to get into that space to complete. So. Thank you so much for uh, joining us today for this heartwarming discussion. <laughs> it, was, it was a true pleasure. I think we all worked through some some heavy stuff here. Indeed. <laughs> Many thanks to Charles Soule for joining us to finally, finally talk about Gerald's Game. Uh, we mentioned a little bit in the in the show that it took a while for us to to get around to this title, like, and we mm-hmm. just kept expecting people to bring it to us, especially female guests and. Uh, uh, people kind of stayed away from this one. Do you think that that's just because of the um, the subject matter, or yeah, I think the subject matter is part of it. And, right. You know, we really did hold out for a long time, though, hoping for uh, uh, one of our female guests to pick it. And I still think that would have been the more appropriate course of action. But we also got to cover this thing at some point, rather than you know another pet cemetery. We don't want to do another Pet Cemetery right Our now. Our 14th we talk about, Shining episode. Yeah, we're fucking hyped to talk about Gerald's Game, son. I love that movie. So, Indeed. And Charles did a great job. Like, kind of broke broke down, challenged some of our thoughts on it. You know, I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. It was, it was a, one of our more analytical episodes, which I, I do like from time to time. It's not always just us goofing off around here. Sometimes uh, when we're talking about books with those serious uh, things uh, and we don't have Mallory O'Mara on the show, then, <laughs> then we <laughs> yes, can let's uh, blame it know, on her. Yes. be a little bit more serious. Yeah. And uh, speaking of getting analytical with uh, – Mike Flanagan properties. Mm. Uh, we've got something exciting this Friday on the Kingcast Patreon. Don't we, Eric? Oh my goodness gracious me! Yes. So we do these commentaries from time to time, and usually those commentaries tend to be us just bullshitting about uh, a movie. At, you know, like you're just hanging out and talking with friends as a movie's playing. Uh, we actually have uh, we've had two legit commentaries and they're going back to back. Vincenzo Natale was last week mm-hmm. uh, for In the Tall Grass. And then this week we got Mike Flanagan, the Mike Flanagan, to come in and do a three hour plus long commentary on the director's cut of Dr. Sleep. And <laughs> I still can't believe he he's set aside his like I mean, that's like his entire Saturday was spent <laughs> doing this yeah. with us. But like he there really has wanted been, to do it, though. You there know. has been no commentary for it, uh, even on the 4K or in it. There's no commentary. So this is is Mike Flanagan's commentary. It is wonderful. Like, I, I really want to sit here and try to be self-deprecating and all that. But it was great just sitting back and listening to. Mike talk about the development of the movie, the challenges of making the movie and, and hitting that, that bullseye mm-hmm. of, uh, between the Kubrick movie and the King book and all the uh, dark it, tower Easter eggs that Wampler didn't notice. You oh know, yeah. He, po- he, point, he, he points out stuff that I've never seen anybody talk about that was in the background that are heavy, heavy Stephen King Easter eggs, which are really, really rad. Deep uh, nerd we, shit. Deep nerd shit. And, you know, in some really interesting stuff, you know, it was a big project. He talks about the other very famous people that came in to uh, meet with him for the different roles. Uh, the Rose the Hat and uh, Danny Torrance had some pretty heavy hitters uh, that, that came in to talk with him. about Shocking, it. He, shocking names. Attached. Yeah. And he's very open about all of this. And, and he's also very open about, you know, the movie not performing well and and kind of looking back on it a couple of years later and, you know, examining why that didn't happen. And, you know, it, it's just, it's great. Uh, I'm very proud of it and I can't wait for you guys to hear it. And next week 
in the KingCast main feed, we have got an episode that we have been building up to for I don't even know how long at this point. <laughs> started um, as a joke. Started as, yeah, started as a, 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 a kind of a joke and somehow snowballed into it actually happening. It only took us about a about a year to go from, haha, wouldn't this be funny to, hey, we actually did it. But mm. next week in the KingCast main feed, we have got Bronson Pinchot on the show. The star of the Langoliers, the star of Perfect Strangers. You've seen him in films like Beverly Hills Cop, True Romance. He did a, a live event with us uh, back in September at Fantastic Fest and was a fucking delight from top to bottom. He had a great experience and said he would love to come back and do the show. So we finally found some time, sat down with him, and um, it's basically an interview about Bronson Pictures' work on the Langoliers and his career in general and him telling stories. And he is just... Man, he is uh, a live wire. It's uh, it's it's an excellent episode, and we're so delighted we finally got to get him on the show, and also to discover that he is just a fucking rad human being. Like yeah. he rules. Yeah, big fans, big fan. We were big fans before. We're even bigger fans now. Um, and for uh, all the Kingcast listeners who have been showing up a lot in our Twitter feeds recently discussing uh, audiobooks, there. This is definitely the episode for you because uh, Bronson narrated. Uh, or read. We had a whole conversation about what actually that the correct term for for that is. So you have to listen for that. But he is the person who read the Eyes of the Dragon yes. audiobook, and a good chunk of this is all about the art of reading for audiobooks, of mm-hmm. audiobook narration. That's and true. Uh, I'm super excited. We have the next two things coming out are our top tier stuff. Uh, I'm I'm very glad that we got actually Mike. even more than that because then well let's not get ahead of ourselves. But yes. We have many surprises in store for you between now and the end of the year. Yeah, some good plate spinning. Uh, so if you want to keep abreast of all that good stuff, make sure to follow us on Twitter at KingCast19. You can also, uh, if you feel like it, you know, and ce- want to celebrate the uh, uh, the Mike Flanagan episode, you can go and buy an In Flanagan We Trust shirt over at Cotet19.net mm-hmm. and go into the KingCast store there. And uh, yeah, is there anything else you want to want to bring up, Scott, before we wrap this up? Review us on iTunes. We're talking about Mm -hmm. five star reviews, baby. Five stars only. We can't be having the four stars. Don't even think about three. Two and one. Get the fuck out of here. Five stars only, please. Do us a favor. Drop that off. It helps the show, helps us uh, build the audience, all that fun stuff that we don't actually understand. But we just (laughs) go along with it because everyone tells us that's what we're supposed to be doing. Right. That is exactly true. That is the most honest thing uh, <laughs> that they could have possibly even said. We don't understand it, but apparently it's good and we we like good things. So do yes. that. And uh, yeah, we'll see you guys on Friday with that Mike Flanagan director's commentary on the director's cut of Dr. Sleep. And next week with our great, big, long, whopping interview with the great Bronson Pinchot. Adios, folks. The KingCast is a Fangoria podcast production. The show is produced, hosted, and created by Eric Vespi, that's me, and Scott Wampler. Tira Ansley and Abby Goel are executive producers. Daniel Danger is our art director. And editing is done by yours truly. Mm-hmm.